Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Scott Santens, the writer, full-time advocate of universal basic income, and the editor of Basic Income Today, was my guest on this episode of Chatter. I first heard about the idea of universal basic income during my time at university, and I've been fascinated by the idea ever since. I've thought for quite a while that at some point in the future, we may need to adopt some form of basic income to help offset the loss of jobs from automation, and right now because of COVID. And this was a fantastic excuse to get Scott on my show and to quiz him on everything UBI. We get into how to pay for it, why we should be pushing for it now, the creation of a gift economy, and how UBI could drive us away from cheap throwaway consumerism. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's Scott. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the show. It's it's great to have you on. I'm, I'm glad to have someone who I frequently in my head describe as the UBI guy here to talk <laughs> about UBI. Yeah, yeah. No, I talk about UBI a lot. So why don't you start off maybe by describing what UBI is to you and how you would define it personally? Yeah, I would describe it as uh, society investing in itself. You know, this is um, with an amount of money that goes to all of its members um, without work requirement and as individuals uh, on a regular basis for life. So this is just a permanent monthly income floor underneath everyone. Okay, well, that's a quite a nice way of putting it. So it's it's anytime i've seen it discussed it's very much been in in the vein of okay well like this is something for the far future this is something for you know when there's not much work around when everything has been automated mm -hmm. so, so why why should we be discussing this now like why is it important to, to be thinking about you you know in 2020 yeah it's interesting um you know i would usually have like a different answer to that to that question or somewhat different um uh, but right now, it just seems like obviously that we we need this right now because here we are in this environment where it just makes all the sense in the world as far as a pandemic goes and mass unemployment. So we have always been talking about you know thinking ahead towards automation causing mass unemployment. But here we are. It's like you you don't need automation to cause mass unemployment. It can be a pandemic. It can be a disaster of whatever kind and that's just it there's there's always some disaster that's around the corner and it just makes sense to make sure that everyone actually has this firm foundation underneath them for these disasters uh, because right now it just doesn't make any sense that there's you know plenty of food out there in stores and yet there's lines for food banks that there's plenty of housing you know and but people are are actually being evicted from those houses because they can't afford to stay there. You know, businesses are closing and shutting doors, um, not because they're doing anything wrong, but because they don't have any customers because people don't have money to spend as customers. So we are in this position where it's extremely clear that it makes a lot of sense to make sure everyone actually has money to spend. So when you say money to spend, like where, where would you put the, where would you suggest is, is the right level? Because, you know, I've seen there's there's been talk of everything from just like a very small sort of monthly payment to like help top up your income all the way to like proposals yeah. for UBI paying for for everything that you could you know possibly need. Like where where would you draw the line? Like what is for you the optimum sort of amount? Yeah, so I think of this as a floor and I would prefer to design it so that this floor rises over time. Um, in line with productivity growth, because you know, as we automate more, as we become more productive, it just makes sense that that should actually make all of society better off. And so, I don't really care as much about what the floor starts at; just the, that we set the precedent that there should be a floor underneath all of us, and then make sure that it rises over time. So, you know, people um, uh, usually talk about basic income in terms of poverty level. So you can set that at somewhere near the poverty level, a little bit over the poverty level, 
something around that amount. But wherever we set it at, I do suggest that it continues to grow over time uh, in line with productivity. And it's also important to recognize that whatever the point is at, so let's say here in the U.S., if we set it at something that people consider to be low, which would be $500 per month, um, that would actually be at least $500 per month as that minimum amount. So anything you would earn over that would be in addition to that. So $500, you know, that covers food for most people. That can cover uh, a good portion of rent for most people. Uh, so it's that less amount of of stuff to worry about as far as financial insecurity goes that really, and it's not only about making sure that people have some amount of money, but it's that this is a secure, stable amount of money that you always know that amount is going to be coming the next month. And when you know that amount is coming, then that actually increases your security, reduces stress and enables you to plan better about how to use that money. And so it really, there's a lot more value to a basic income beyond just the money itself. So when you say that it has to be linked to productivity level, why do you say productivity or sorry? Yeah. So you said that should be, it should be increasing based on, on productivity increases. Like why not inflation? Yeah, because inflation is usually below productivity increases. So I would prefer that it actually surpass inflation. I want it to the real value of it to grow over time as the real value of you know society's full prosperity grows over time. And so it, in the U.S., this is very clear, but this is also true around the world as well, that productivity has decoupled from wages. And so in the U.S., it happened around in the 1970s. Was it and that so early? We're actually, yeah, yeah. So we're twice as productive as we were back then. And yet, are we all like twice as well off? Like, no, because wages stayed stagnant this entire time. And that has just, that gap has grown bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, we just did uh, in the U.S. recent analysis that came out just a couple weeks ago that showed that if wages had actually been in line with productivity growth, then someone earning 30K back in the 70s, you know, would be earning 60K now, that someone would be earning 50K then would be earning 100K now. And actually, that has been um, $50 trillion worth has gone to the top that should have gone to everyone as a whole. And that's like at an annual basis, that's $2.5 trillion right now that should be going to the bottom 90% that it's did only gone to the top. So I, when people ask like how we pay for basic income, you know, I, I like to point out that gap and show that, well, the money is there. It's just all going to the top right now. We are not all as society's members um, getting this dividend that uh, we should be getting. It's only going to the top. Now, one of the things that, that, that people kind of, especially, I don't know, say perhaps older, more conservative folks, um, very much like the pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of, kind of attitude that people mm -hmm. would, would say, okay, so you're just giving people free money. Like that's just, that's just communism or socialism, or that's just, um, sort of left wing madness. Like what, what is your sort of general response to, do you think that the, that UBI is, is compatible with, with capitalism or does it, does that like have to come like wholesale with like a full Marxist revolution? Yeah. When people usually, which it's a very frequent uh, response, but when people um, respond that way, I usually respond in asking you know, was Milton Friedman a communist? Was Friedrich Hayek a communist? Is the state of Alaska a communist state? You know, is the is the board game Monopoly a game that teaches people about communism? Like, none of that is true. And it's exactly the opposite. You know, Milton Friedman or Friedrich Hayek were well-known Nobel Prize winning free market economists that anyone who talks about that should know who their names are and what they represent. Um, and Alaska has had an annual dividend that goes to every Alaskan since 1982 of around $1,000, $2,000. And I think it's really important that people know and recognize that. And if people ask, you know, where has it been tried in the world, that is the best example of a UBI. 
because it has been operating the longest and it's been going to every single person in Alaska, uh, child and adult, rich, poor, goes to everybody. I would also say that for someone who's asking about, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, you, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you have no boots. And so telling that to a, a bootless man is just messed up because it's impossible. Uh, and then of course, there's a joke that it's it's not possible anyways, <laughs> because you, you can't actually do anything if you're just pulling yourself by your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. But for as the as the saying goes, um, if you do believe in that saying, it's important to make sure that everyone has boots. And I would say that Basic income is money for everyone to buy boots to actually make that possible. Mm. So basically, you're suggesting that everyone should have this sort of little bit of starter capital, almost like a base from which they can then choose to do whatever they want with their time, be that, you know, perhaps inventing some new product or uh, looking after their kids or, you know, whatever they want. But did, yeah. was, um, Mar- sorry, go ahead and ask my next question. I was just going to say, yeah, you know, just, Markets are extremely effective at what they do, and markets require money uh, to make those transactions possible. That's how this all works. Uh, it's how you calculate you know, supply and demand. You have someone with a product or service. You have someone who wants that product or service. You're able to exchange money to make it happen. And so another way of looking at this, too, is basic income actually makes those transactions more possible and therefore actually improves the functioning of markets by improving, improving the, the, the pricing mechanism for supply demand. There's an example of this, you know, let's say you, you're, you start up a store, you're selling ice cream, and let's say you end up having to close because, you know, you just don't have enough customers. So here's your question. Did you not have enough customers because people didn't have enough disposable income to go into your store? Or did people have plenty of disposable income, but they just didn't like your ice cream? So there's no way of determining which one of those is true. The market can't do that. Uh, But you can make sure that you know that it's true if everyone has money, because at least you know that they have the money to choose whether to, say, vote for your product. And that's how it can actually improve um, the way markets work. Some people would perhaps say that you, if if you're sort of suggesting that, that markets and, and free markets will eventually mean that capital accumulates in, in the hands of a smaller and smaller and smaller group of people, as, as you've kind of suggested has happened uh, mm-hmm. over the past 30, yeah. 40 years, um, is like trying to just like give those extra few pennies to the the you know the the poorest people is that like putting a a band-aid on like a gaping wound in in you know the 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 whole system or is that like the place from which you can begin to to find a way to restrain the worst excesses of of capitalism yeah i would actually say it's 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 both so on the one hand money is beyond just money. Again, when I talk about basic income being about security too, it's it's also about power. And so when you have an unconditional amount of money, so you're always going to start with that. It's It's a right of citizenship. Then that's the ability to say no to people. And that's the ability to say no to employers offering low wages. And so actually in the US, you can, there's a really interesting graph you can find that um, that shows you know union membership versus inequality, and you see that as union membership grew, inequality went down, and as it shrank, inequality went up. And so I look at a graph like that, and I don't just see unions; I see bargaining power. You know that's what bargaining power creates. And so when everyone has that bargaining power through basic income, then that's when you can say to employers, "Look, I'm not going to work for you for eight dollars an hour." Uh, I'll do this job for fifteen to $15 an hour. I'll do it for $20 an hour. I'll do it for 20 hours a week instead of 40. You know, I'll do it in these, you know, better working conditions instead of these terrible ones. Like you have to be able to withhold your labor in order to make sure that that way that labor actually pays the price that that is sufficient. And that's actually, again, that's a free labor market. You know, there there is no free labor market if people are actually coerced into those labor transactions. So yeah, power is is very important um, to UBI. 
And also, again, when I say both, if you actually have that that unconditional amount of money, it's not just power, but that's actually the ability to do things and invest in in activities that are required in order to, like, say, make the government function better in order to actually make sure that there are the regulations that exist, that there are the taxation levels that exist. You know, if you have that basic income, then that means you can volunteer for um, political campaigns, that you can even, you're more able to run for office yourself, that you're able to, you know, volunteer for phone banks, that you're able to knock on doors. You're even able to donate to campaigns that you feel actually represent the people instead of corporations. You know, it's, it really is its power to the people in a way that's, that's financial and economic security, but it's also power to the people as far as, you know, citizenship goes. Uh, you see this a lot, too, when people actually reach uh, retirement age and they start receiving some kind of senior pension. Then, you know, it's not like they stop doing everything. Hmm. They don't. What they do is they start doing things that are um, a lot of unpaid activities or, you know, starting something up. But one of the things they do become is much more active in politics. Mm. So you think that's that's directly as a function of having more time? Yeah, it's more time and uh, that uh, passive income that enables unpaid work. And that's, again, a, a key component uh, of this is recognizing that so much work that is valuable in society is entirely unpaid. And it's effectively done by people who can afford to do that work. So usually, let's say it's because um, you're a spouse of someone who makes plenty of money, so you don't have to, so you're able to do unpaid work. Or that, you know, there's a lottery winner or a trust fund, or um, maybe you have um, some kind of passive income that happened through maybe an early retirement or something. Um, there's a lot of ways that um, enable people to pursue unpaid work. Uh, but always the key component is that obviously your basic needs are being met that enable you to do this other stuff. So you mentioned um, Friedman and, and Hayek as, as examples as to why people should should support UBI. I was not aware that either of those two free marketeers um, were in favor of the idea. Just because... Um, mm-hmm. Like a lot of the, the, the literature I've read um, based on and from those two has been very much that any kind of government intervention in the market is a hindrance to the market. And that uh, UBI feels like, like a pretty large intervention and therefore I feel like they might have thought it was a pretty large hindrance to the market in, in, in their sort of, um, you know, Chicago school field of economics. Like what is the... Where did they support it? And, and you're like, what was their their rationale? Yeah, so Milton Friedman's rationale was that this operates outside the market. You know, you're not telling the market what to do. You're just making sure that people have an amount of money um, regardless of outside forces. And so he saw it also as being, well, why are we doing all these government programs that, you know, tell people what to do? that, um, you know, dictate um, uh, certain things that are, you know, conditions of some kind, like, say, you know, work requirements, job requirements, um, uh, that you need to, say, spend on only food and only, you know, certain types of food uh, based on, like, a voucher system, or that, you know, when it comes to housing, that you are told to go live in in this housing complex in this area of the city um, instead of actually having money to spend as a renter anywhere you want to. You know, the market, again, requires money. And his logic was, let's just make sure that people have money to choose for themselves. Um, Hayek's logic, too, was that there is... um, the, you know, the state isn't the only um, entity that dominates people, that uh, the corporations and businesses can dominate people as well, again, through this inability to refuse their conditions. So if you actually make sure that outside of the marketplace and as citizens, people have this amount of money, then you know, you're not guaranteeing um, some you know, um, outcome 
but you're guaranteeing this level of opportunity that enables people to actually refuse domination of others, be it, um, uh, you know, corporatist or state. So they, they essentially saw it as, as something to, to encourage freedom and freedom of choice in, in the markets in, in terms of, so rather right. than giving people the food, food stamps or housing that you would basically give them the money and let them choose themselves. I guess that's a pretty, I, I see how that fits much better into their, their, their thinking than, than I'd considered. Um, but you, 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 so, you sort of mentioned Alaska as well as an example of, um, mm-hmm. of, uh, you just like a, a fantastic case study for this. Like what, what, mm-hmm. what, what could you say we've learned from, from that study? Um, and do you want to maybe explain exactly what the, the Alaskan system is, um, for people who don't know? Yeah, so in the late 70s, Alaska discovered that they had a vast amount of oil wealth. And so they debated, you know, what should we do about this? Now, traditionally, and you see this all over the world as far as natural resources goes, that people find natural resources and then they just, you know, dig it up and sell it. And then someday it's gone. And then what do you have? Nothing. It's all done. So they thought, okay, well, let's basically convert some of this non-renewable natural resource into a permanent ongoing resource. So what they did is they created what is called the Alaska Permanent Fund. And they started putting 25% of the revenue from this into this fund that was then invested, you know, as a giant fund in the markets. So in 1982, that was the first dividend payout. And they set up this dividend that way. So every citizen, every resident of Alaska, as in they've been there for the, a full year of the previous year, um, receives this check or they, and, and they, they get it as, you know, their rightful ownership of this, you know, Alaska's oil wealth. And what happens as a result? Well, it of course means that, you know, poverty has been reduced, that, um, uh, some of the, um, some of the effects that have been analyzed uh, more recently even is you've seen that over the decades, it's it's meant that um, part-time employment has increased by uh, 17%. And um, the effect of full-time employment has been neutral. So they found that um, that this extra money can, can lead to people doing less full-time work. But at the same time, it actually increases the demand and spending, which creates new jobs and enables more people to work. So that kind of nullifies itself out for full-time work. But there is a a pretty big, I think, you know, increase as far as part-time work goes. And and again, people think, well, you know, we shouldn't expect that many, say, um, work effects for like a, you know, say a $1,500 dividend. But, you know, if you have a, a family of four, then, you know, that's, that's $6,000 for the year. And so that's, it's a, it's a good chunk of change. And when it's up to, you know, over $2,000, family of five is $10,000, you know, at least. And so, you know, that's a, that can really change your, um, your, what you decide to do for, for hours of work. And um, yeah, so part-time work has increased. You've also seen there's been effects um, every time the payout goes out, uh, property property crime goes down for a few months. And um, you've also seen that um, child obesity has decreased. And so um, there's actually these positive effects throughout life um, that they've you know, they've calculated that it saved millions of dollars from you know, less obesity in Alaska. Um, and also another big one is that child birth weights have increased to, you know, a healthier level. And so, um, and that's due to better maternal nutrition. And that too is a long-term kind of thing because we know that, um, kids who are born underweight tend to have more, um, health issues as adults. Um, so there's like a lot of these also long-term indicators that show that you know this isn't just something that improves things in the short term but it does have better you know solid long-term consequences too especially for health okay um the the part-time work thing is really interesting because uh one of the things that i kind of often was in my mind or in discussions uh, that i've had with people about about ubi was that 
I felt that eventually at some point, and this is the way that we're going with the, the sort of the four day week, um, that eventually we would get to the point where everyone's still, like most people I think will, I don't know, I don't see a point at which people don't want like a workplace to go to at least mm. sometimes. Do, do you know what I mean? That, that, that they won't get to, a, where people won't get to a point where they go, you know, I either want to work full time or I don't. I feel like the the, mm. the the ultimate result, perhaps fifty years down the line, um, maybe sooner, maybe longer. We you know we don't know how how good automation is going to be in in ten years and how how freely it's going to be allowed to be used in in jobs. You know you might see sort of protectionist legislation go in, but I always kind of felt like we were drifting towards this this way where most people would probably work part time, and and that mm. that we it would be topped up by some kind of UBI um, or uh, I don't know negative tax rates or yeah i don't know so that's really interesting that it actually is okay you sort of mentioned that the full-time employment hasn't gone hasn't gone down but that's because of increased demand and whatnot a little more money flowing around the economy but did you predict that this sort of or or you know perhaps it's just an outlier but do you predict anything along those kind of lines in terms of the sort of move towards part-time work oh sure and yeah there's there's a really interesting discussion to have too, as far as uh, basic income, um, you know, really combining well with uh, a redefinition of what full time is, you know, because as we go into this future and, and as even right now when we're dealing with unemployment, like, does it make sense that we have a group of people who are fully employed, who are working 40 hours or more? And in fact, their work levels have increased um, because of this crisis that we're in, their reduced bargaining power, you know, employers asking them to do more without paying them more, you know, so they can actually be loaded up with hours of work that are far beyond what they would prefer to do. And then there are people who have zero hours and they can't find any employment at all. That situation doesn't make sense to me. It's never made sense to me. And it certainly doesn't make sense going into the future with more and more automation. Um, so, yeah, we, it does make sense to actually say, all right, let's make sure that the available work that we have that we can employ people with and pay them to do is divvied up better so that instead of having people working zero hours and a lot of hours, that everyone who wants a job can actually work, say, 20 hours. So, yeah, I think that makes um, a lot of sense to do at a, at a, at a, as a purposeful goal that we should purposely redefine full-time to going from 40 hours to something, say, like a four-day week instead of five days or a six-hour day instead of eight hours a day. Like, it's up to us as a, as a society to, like, rewrite those norms because those norms used to be very different. You know, we used to have a six-day week. We used to work, you know, 60 hours normal. So we should redefine that. Uh, as far as, as people choosing uh, part-time or full-time, I think that is something that... Um, there's a couple of things to be said about that. First is that I think it is easier to do this, you know, part-time work. It's if you if you can already have a job of some kind, maybe you're already doing unpaid work, but you're like, hey, I can actually fit part-time, you know, a, a 15, 20 hour job or something into my schedule. And I would happily do that um, for this extra income. And so there's that. On the other side of it too, uh, especially for people who are receiving some kind of benefits already, part-time work is the most difficult to actually accept because if you accept a part-time job, then you'll get a little bit more money and it is most likely going to erase the benefits that you are getting to the point where you actually be worse off accepting the part-time job than you are the uh, benefits. And such that the the only thing that makes sense is to just uh, to accept like a, a good paying full time job, and so those are can be very difficult to come guy, which then means that you have all these people who prefer to stay on benefits because that's the right you know it just makes sense to do that. So then when you have this fully unconditional floor, suddenly it makes a lot more sense to be able to choose that part time work because you're always better off choosing it with a UBI than you are with any kind of conditional benefit. Mm. So what do you make of the, actually, hang on, let, let's go, let, I'll, I'll save that for later. So what sort of time scale do you see this, uh, that sort of transition happening on and uh, to the point where, you know, UBI is, is like a widely accepted thing. So 
maybe you don't like see it being inevitable, but I kind of get that. I feel like that's the way we're we're talking that this is almost an inevitability that something of this oh, of this form yeah. will will just you, like the, there's almost too much momentum behind the idea at this point. So like, what sort of time scale do you see this unfolding over? Maybe in in the U.S. Uh, like globally, it's a bit more difficult to say, but for for you for you know your home home country. Yeah, so first of all, um, I think it's also interesting to point out that the U.S. almost led the way on this. And so, you know, Nixon proposed a variant of basic income. Really? Nixon? He, uh, it was, yeah, Nixon. So he was going to guarantee income um, for families. So it would have excluded um, childless adults, but it actually would have guaranteed income for all families in the U.S., and based entirely on just what people were earning. You know, it didn't care if people were um, unemployed. For the most part, um, they would say there was like a, a small work requirement that actually could mean that um, the, say, the, the primary earning males of households, uh, if they refused to work, they would have lost their income. But then the, um, the mother and the kids, you know, would have kept theirs. So... It, there's some details in there that are interesting to get into, but overall, he was actually leading the way on a guaranteed income in the U.S., and that was also why we did a bunch of pilots in the U.S. even back in the 70s. So we did guaranteed income experiments in um, uh, New Jersey was the first one. We did um, uh, Gary, Indiana. We did rural North Carolina. Um and we did, um, the biggest ones were in Seattle and Denver. And so these experiments were, uh, you know, different uh, lengths of time, usually a few years up to about uh, six years. And the amounts varied because they wanted to see, like, what is the effect on work for a higher versus a lower amount? And also, what is the effect on work based on a larger versus a smaller uh, clawback rate? Um for the amount of income based on what you were earning. And very interesting experiments and, and, and data from that as well. But politically speaking, it of course was interesting how Nixon was behind this. And we passed it in our House of Representatives twice in 1970 and 1971. It actually was such a big deal that it was labeled as HR1 in 1971. HR1 being the first bill proposed in a brand new Congress. So that first bill is usually, you know, kind of has a has a like ceremonial value. You know, there's they're, they're saying this is the most important thing for us to pass. Let's do it immediately. And so for that, that was guaranteed income in 1971. It did not make it through the House. I mean, the Senate in um, either year. It was stopped there. But if it had made it through the House, Nixon, of course, would have signed it into law because he was the one that... Can I... Sorry, just, just like, can so I pause we you close. one second uh, before you keep going? Yeah. Was that... Who... who Do you know who had control of the House and the Senate at that point? Yeah, so it was Democrats. Okay. In the Senate as well? They had the, yeah. the House and the Senate? Okay. Yeah, and so it couldn't make it through the, the uh, Senate Finance Committee. The Senate Finance Committee was actually chaired by a Democrat. He was a Southern Democrat named Russell Long. Interestingly, too, Russell Long was the son of Huey Long, and Huey Long is actually someone who pushed for his own very high UBI back in the day before he was assassinated. Uh, he wanted to call it the Share the Wealth Program. Okay. And so Russell Long, his reasoning against guaranteeing income was, quote, who will press my shirts? He was worried that Southern workers would gain too much power from having a guaranteed income and could actually refuse to do stuff that he wanted them to do at the price he wanted. <laughs> so he was against that. And of course, there's also some racism in this, too, as a Southern Democrat, that it was also, you know, there's a it was more about black Americans and having that power versus white Americans. But in general, it's about that power. And also a couple other elements um, that prevented its passage of the Senate was that Democrats actually wanted a higher amount. So they didn't, there were some who, who weren't on board with the rest because they thought it was too low. And on the conservative side from among Republicans, they were concerned about women gaining too much freedom 
and divorcing their husbands. <laughs> That's amazing. So all those kind of wow. together, um, you know, mixed into to it not making its way mm. through the Senate. I mean, that rings a little. That rings a little sort of bitter, doesn't it? The Democrats being having too too <laughs> high a bar, being too pure about about what they were passing to get it through. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, we're still exactly. seeing that. Like, it's not like it's, it's just over mm. and over again. Um, so, yeah, right now, as far as like the timeline that we're in right now, um, you know, I believe that obviously this is something that we should have done decades ago, that we could have led the world on decades ago. But here we are now. Um, they're still not the first country to actually adopt a full basic income. And we can be that country. Uh, it, 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 it depends on a lot of factors, but I think that the game really changed as far as when this coronavirus hit, um, uh, here in, in, in worldwide, it really changed the equation. Uh, a lot of countries are learning that what matters is making sure people actually receive income and that, um, that they shouldn't be, you know, making work a requirement in order to, to receive that income. And that actually stimulates economies and prevents a lot further, unemployment. Um, so here in the US, you know, I don't see it under a Trump presidency. You don't think uh, that they could again, sell it to him? Like, say he wins in November, but the Democrats take the House and the Senate, like, okay, right, this is a really, like, fantastical scenario. But I'd really be considering, like, what happens if that does yeah. happen. Um, because I think there's, it's not, like, it's not, like, beyond the realms of possibility that the Democrats take the Senate, but not the presidency and, like, hold on to the House. So do you, you don't think they could, like, be like, you know, we'll just, we'll just call it the Trump basic income. And he'd be like, it says Trump on it. And yeah. then sign. <laughs> Yeah, when when Trump first entered office, uh, I was willing, you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt as far as a a unknown kind of um, you know wild card, and I thought, well, yeah, just call it Trump box, yes. and 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 Trump can be into it. Uh, but the interesting thing too is that during his presidency, he's actually made a point of increasing the conditions on existing benefits. So he wanted to introduce work requirements for healthcare through Medicaid, that he wanted to make it harder to receive uh, food stamps. And, you know, there's been this, this restricting of this in, in increasing the requirements. And that's not, that doesn't point to someone who's interested in, in basic mm -hmm. income. And uh, at the same time too, um, he's never been asked about it, which is weird. Yeah, like, I think I, I'm surprised that he's not yeah. on record. You know, no one has asked him about what are your thoughts, you know, on a universal basic income. The closest is the stimulus check, and he has, you know, approved of the stimulus check. He was very proud to sign his name on mm. the stimulus check. You know, he's willing to like hold that up the process in order to make sure he can sign his name on it. Um, and you know, wanted people to know that 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 he sent that to them. So that's good that he was into that. And it's good even recently that he has said, um, hey, we've got $300 billion that we haven't spent yet that we've already um, allocated for assistance. Uh, let's just make sure everyone gets that in the form of another stimulus check. I just need Congress to give me the okay mm -hmm. in order to do that. Like, that's good too. It's a positive sign. But my concern is is his willingness to do, you know, an actual ongoing stimulus instead of thinking that oh that hurts the work ethic and oh it it actually you know prevents people from from employment and all this like mm -hmm. nonsense um you know that's what i'm that's what i'm concerned about and also you know biden it's, it, he has felt like the same way mm -hmm. it's like he's talked about basically in terms of like oh people need the dignity of work and you know blah blah like what do you what do you make of arguments thing. like that where, where people be like oh what would people do all day you know, they just, you give them some money, yeah. they don't, they don't have to work, they won't. Like, do you think people would find a, a way? Do you think it's very much an, an individual thing that each person has to figure out how much? Well, yeah. it's funny too, when it comes to both of them. So, um, Biden is, his receiving about, um, 21 basic incomes, uh, a month. And so that's through his, uh, Senate pension. <laughs> he receives about a quarter of a million dollars every month and that's his floor. So, you know, it's not he doesn't have to do anything for it he gets that until the day he dies and that's where his starting point is every month is that you know around two hundred fifty thousand dollars so 
That's such Does a joke. that rob him of the dignity of work? Like, of course not. He, he, he still works, you know, doing all kinds of things. He's running for president. Yeah, he's running for the <laughs> hardest job in the like potentially, like probably the hardest right. job in the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's what almost eighty years old, and he's he's still working hard, and his giant pension is not preventing him in any way. In fact, I would say, you know, it's enabling him to do this. And Trump too, like as a I, he was already receiving a basic income at the age of three, I believe. Like he already had a, a giant trust fund. He was already a millionaire and he was a, mm-hmm. a child because of the money that his father provided. And so neither of them have ever you know, felt that they were robbed of dignity because of this passive income that they both mm-hmm. have. So, yeah, w- when you actually have a passive income that is not um, you know, requiring you to do anything to receive it, you don't do nothing. You, you're enabled to do um, whatever it is that's important to you. You're able to earn income on top of it. You're able to pursue unpaid work. You can do volunteering. Like there's all kinds of work that you're enabled to do by having um, that in, in you know, being free of poverty and the fear of mm-hmm. poverty. So like, what would you make of, so there's, there's, there's a few critiques that I've read of, of UBI where they were saying that the problem with our current economic system is not that people do not have enough money to spend it's that we have so much focus on consumerism and that ubi is basically a way of of continuing to prop up the sort of unsustainable levels of consumerism that we have become accustomed to in the west rather than saying okay maybe we need to look at this and say what is enough like should we be saying okay people focus more on you know growing your own vegetables um or you know do you need those three like abroad flights abroad mm-hmm. every year or you know just just that kind of like do we do we need to consider that perhaps less is 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 sufficient for 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 humans or and is 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 UBI like propping up the the consumerist culture that you know is is often like so heavily critiqued yeah, I think there's a couple things here where I would argue that a lot of the consumerism and the level that we're seeing it is due to a lack of basic income. Because again, it's not just about the money. It's that if you don't start with money, if it's not guaranteed, if you don't have that floor, then you're always chasing money. And so people are spending their entire lives chasing money and then they compare against each other. So you have this um, uh, just giant like chase for anything you can get. You're, you're advertising that you're better than everyone else. And we have an economy that's built on perpetual growth because it needs to have that growth in order to uh, you know, perpetuate itself. I argue that, that, that basic income enables us to close that loop that you're actually, instead of requiring constant growth, you're just making sure that the money circulates instead of continually going up and staying there and then requiring new amounts of growth, you know, to get to the bottom and then for that to go up too. You got to close that loop so that you're actually enable enabling a sustainable economy by actually making sure that that money circulates. Then when you do that too, you know, a couple other, um, couple other benefits happen as well. Um, so for one, when you've closed that loop, you can make more, um, Uh, more sustainable decisions so you can say all right instead of of let's say um purchasing a like disposable pair of shoes that you know are going to you know dissolve after like you know a matter of months or like a year of use or something um that you're able to purchase a more expensive pair of shoes more like an investment and that lasts a lot longer so that's tied into this, this um, you know, lack of sufficient disposable income, uh, because if you barely have any disposable income, because all you can afford is, you know, what you need for food and housing and, and stuff, you have no you know, discretionary income to actually spend on stuff. Then you're saying, all right, I've only got a few bucks to spend. I have to buy the cheapest thing I can find. That is where a lot of this um, uh, completely wasteful um utilization of resources comes from is that where you know this disposable culture where it's really because all you can afford is this disposable culture 
But then if you actually make sure everyone has the money that they can buy the things that last longer, then that's all you where you not only create more lasting things and buy those lasting things, but then there's, I think, also more of a, you know, let's fix what we have instead of just buying another thing. Because then there's also time involved. Like, I, I think part of this, too, is, you know, why aren't we fixing stuff? Fixing stuff takes time. It's so much easier just to toss something, buy something again cheap, and go from there. But again, if you're buying something more expensive and it's meant to last longer, then you're more likely to spend some time if you have the basic income to allow that time to actually make sure that this continues lasting longer. So there's like a couple psychological changes that I think are important to this. And, um, you know, one of them has been observed too, um, as far as, uh, let's say, an environmental outcome of basic income. And this was... um, a uh, um, unconditional cash result. Um, I can't remember which country it came from now. Um, I have to look that up again. But the result of this unconditional grant was that people actually um, did less, um, you know, cutting down of all the trees around them, that it reduced deforestation by 40%. And, you know, so why was that? Well, you know, the deforestation, a lot of that was coming from the need for money. And so when you made sure that people actually had money, that they didn't have to cut down trees, then they didn't. And instead, they actually, you know, created more jobs and, you know, did more local um, things outside of, of that, which they obviously didn't want to do. And you see that elsewhere, too, where you see increased self-employment through basic income and um, you see less like, um, another one was a decrease in illegal hunting, aka you know poaching, by ninety five percent, and that was in the Namibia UBI experiment. So you know there, I would I point to that and say, look, there are crimes, then there's stuff that people do for money that they would never do if they didn't feel that they had to do it. As soon as you actually make sure that they don't need to do it anymore, then they don't do it. And so I think that looking at that from an environmental perspective is important too. That there's a lot of things that we do we know is bad for the environment, we know is unsustainable, but we feel that we have to do it as a result of not having So you'd say essentially that the poverty drives the the need for a cheap disposable set of, I don't yeah. know, just anything, like cheap disposable garbage that we buy, shoes, you know, I don't know, plates, any like wardrobes, anything. So you say that that is actually the, the the poverty is preventing us from investing in something better and more permanent. Yeah, yeah. In the in economic terms, it's called inferior goods, um, which is where when the demand increases um, or when the money increases, um, the demand for that good decreases. Because usually you would expect that if with people have more more money, then demand would increase. But for inferior goods, they decrease. Another thing I want to mention too is the um, the ability that uh, basic income creates for a gift economy, and so you know, right now, let's say you you need to engage in in uh, monetary transactions, um, but if you actually have enough money to pay for your basic needs, so that you've you know you've got your food, you've got your housing, you've got everything that are actually the actual basics, then you don't have to engage in transactions with other people. You can actually do it for free. Again, that's paid into the, the unpaid work element. So then you can say, all right, I'm going to, um, you know, make paintings. I'm going to be a painter and I'm, and I'm not going to charge anyone for it. Like I could do that, but actually I'm just going to, you know, make sure that, that, that people actually can have this and say, you know, here. And then that's reciprocated. And other people can say, well, you know, I'm feeling that I'm getting so much from others that I too am going to just do stuff and give. And so that's something that you, it's not really possible as long as you have to make enough money to survive. But as soon as you actually have those basics, then it really enables this more of a sharing economy, like a true sharing economy to flourish. You know, imagine how many more people um, would be engaging as um, you know Wikipedia editors or uh, free software coders or you know all these things that that take up a lot of time and effort, but the only way the only people doing them are those who actually 
are able to afford to do them, both money and time. Yeah, that's a yeah, yeah. That's a really it's a really interesting point. Actually, I hadn't ever quite considered it in in those terms before. Um, but uh, I'm aware that we're we're sort of coming to it, coming up to the R. Um, but so I want to ask my final question: uh, Is there so how would you? like propose that that uh i know we sort of touched on this briefly but how would you propose that we, we mm. fund it uh, do you see envision like a carbon tax uh like a, a financial transaction tax um some form of just like uh, i don't know some sort of tax on 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 fossil fuels or, or I, there's so many ways you could do it like what what is your what is your yeah. do you have are you like maybe not married to one but is there a, a, a way you prefer yeah, I'm not married to one, but I certainly say have my preferences. Um, first of all, like in a in a perfect world where people aren't concerned about taxes, then I would say just focus on getting the money out there. Um, because I think that right now the fact that we enable you know banks to create the money supplies, you know the, that that money supply is 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 made into existence via debt. Um, I want to change that. You know, I just think that, look, if we're if we're going to create currency, then let's just create it and make sure that people have it as an individual universal, you know, right that they are actually part of the seniority process um, instead of letting banks do it. So I would change the way that we make money um, so that we can all benefit from it. That's same kind of a preference. And so that it's kind of like the, the MMT way of yeah, thinking. Yeah, I was going to ask, is that, is that um, sort of, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, but when it comes into MMT, you know, that's a whole other discussion too. But I, 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 I do like that, you know, this idea of governments aren't constrained by their ability to create currency. Uh, the constraints come through like, you know, inflationary effects and, you know, effects that arise from, say, creating too much currency so that negative things happen, so that you want to introduce taxes in order to reduce those things you don't want. You know, it's, it's a kind of a simplistic way of looking at MMT. Uh, but I think it's important that that governments do look at this as not saying, how do we raise the money first and then calculate that all out and then do what they can with that money that they've raised and just say, look, if this is important to us, then let's do it. And then we'll actually design taxes to make it so that it, it works the way we want it to. So looking at it that way, then I think it makes sense to use Pagovian taxes. You know, so carbon taxes is a good example. I would love to see an annually rising carbon tax, you know, is one thing. Um, but I, I like the idea of Pagovian taxes. For those who aren't familiar with what that is, it's taxing um, those with ex- stuff with externalized costs. So Carbon taxes are the best example because we know that climate change is an externalized cost of the use of fossil fuels, that it is, you know, it's not priced into the cost of, say, gasoline. When you spend money on gasoline, you're not spending for the costs of all the results of what happens when you burn it. (laughs) And it's certainly the companies themselves, you know, Exxon is not spending the money on the costs of climate change. You know, it's all it's all externalized to all of, of the earth. You know, everyone on earth is an externalized cost for us. So, you know, the question is, what else can we tax in a way that we can reduce that behavior um, and so that we all benefit from that? So, you know, let's tax stuff that is, is let's say, you know, it's like a tobacco tax that we're, we could tax, um, you know, we could, you could utilize, um, uh, say, marijuana mm-hmm. revenue uh for for this stuff and you know also like let's say like a soda tax you know that was something where you know people hated it in new york when it was proposed um because if just a soda tax on its own is it's almost like a tax on poverty because you know it's something that that more people who are in poverty are actually consuming because it's very cheap and it's something that they can you know afford and if you make it more expensive, then you're hurting them. Yeah, it's, it's healthier, but you're hurting them. So then when you actually introduced, you know, like with the carbon dividend, you know, that the way that works. So you, you raise revenue from tax that you don't want. You make sure people get that revenue. So then there's that choice of saying, look, do I want to use, you know, do I want to spend the higher cost on this? Or 
do I want to change to something else? And so that's what kind of Bogovian taxes opens up is this greater choice in choosing um, a better way instead of the way that we're going. And also, I, I think it's important when it, when it comes to affording basic income is looking at just what every country is already doing. And I don't just mean welfare programs, which is the way you, people usually look at it. But I'm also talking about like assistance to the tax code that people don't see as assistance. So, you know, that means, you know, your your standard deduction that everyone receives, your, you know, uh, standard allowance, uh, your tax subsidies, um, you know, earned income tax credits, your um, housing subsidy, your tax credit. Um, you know, there's there's all kinds of things that we do and say, if you do that, then we'll reduce your taxes. And I say, no, stop doing that. Just, you know, don't carve out all these ways for you to reduce your taxes. Just charge people the taxes and then make sure that the basic income is seen as like a universal tax rebate that you receive regardless of all that stuff. And so if you look at it that way, so many countries are you know already doing this. You know, it's, they're already paying for a basic income. It's just what they're doing is saying you only get it if you do this or you do this or you do this yeah. or you do this. And there's all different various ways of doing it. Just say, look, get rid of all that stuff. Just flatten it out. Make sure people have a floor, and you you can utilize what you're already paying for. It. You're just saying no more conditions. You know, because there shouldn't be conditions on you know people's basic survival. Mm. I mean, along those li- that line of thinking, it's really interesting. Today, I was I was um, wondering whether the level of fossil fuel subsidies that we give out are greater than the tax revenue that we get from those companies. And I was like, hang on, are we paying them to exist? I have to look up the figures, but like, it's it's a similar line of thinking. Like, people don't often realize the sort of hidden costs of things. Um, yeah. and, and, and yeah, you, you make, you make a very, very good point about, you know, where there's a lot of countries who are already paying out the cost of a, a, a UBI without, um, without realizing. Yeah. And when you, when you talk about the hidden cost of things too, like the biggest hidden cost of all is poverty. You know, all of us are paying for poverty in all kinds of ways. And, and not only is it about paying for actual poverty, like people living in poverty and those costs, but you're also paying for people being afraid of living in poverty. And so that actually results in a lot of stress, insecurity, and you can actually not live in poverty and you have all these negative consequences because of your fear of falling into poverty. So poverty itself is extremely expensive. It, you know, it causes uh, health outcomes that are negative that then put strains on health systems. Um, that it imposes costs on through the criminal justice system, through crime rates, you know, through wouldn't exist otherwise. And that's uh, there's also a big productivity cost. So if you're, you know, if people are doing forms of work that they have no interest in, which is actually a global problem, uh, only 15% of people worldwide are engaged by the work that they're being paid to do. Um, so if you're in, engaged in work and you have no interest in it, you're just doing it for the for the paycheck, then that's bad for productivity. If if you enable people through a basic income to actually find the work that they want to do, that they're really engaged in, then you actually enable more productivity. And so I also I, I see this as as a lost productivity cost through this um, maintenance of poverty too. So again. Every country is already paying a lot of money to not have a basic income, and they're already paying for basic income in all these very ways. And we should just change all of that so that we just make sure people start with the UBI. Okay, that's that's a pretty pretty nice place to leave uh, leave things. Is there anything you wanna you wanna plug before we wrap up here? Uh, I guess internationally, even too, just recommend that 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 people contact their representatives and just you know get them to support basic income you know that's the only way it's going to happen is if people are actually being active and reaching out to politicians and and getting them as politicians to understand that hey this is actually a big issue and if i'm against it then a may not win and if i'm for it it increases my chances of winning and 
when politicians all over the world start to realize that there's that equation going on, then there's going to be a lot more people pushing for basic income. And there's going to be a lot more countries that adopt basic income. And for every country that adopts basic income, I think is going to encourage others because there's going to be positive consequences that happen out of that. And I think you're going to see a positive feedback loop build. And that's how we actually get this going on like a worldwide level where we're actually making a big progress in eliminating poverty worldwide. Well, I I hope we we move in that direction. Maybe I'm I'm quite I'm quite optimistic that the the pandemic and the sort of subsequent lockdowns and and whatnot will will actually change a lot. Um, and perhaps you know yeah. our attitudes to UBI will be one of them. I mean, it's too a little too early to tell on a lot of fronts, but you know, fingers crossed. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, well, not just not just fingers crossed. We got to make it happen, you know. Well, there you go. We got to make it happen. That's <laughs> right. that is the that is the message. Um, but yeah, man, that was that was a, an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book Brexit: The Establishment Civil War is now available to pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.